Welcome to a special edition of Breaking Badness. In this bonus episode, you'll hear from Jackie Abrams, Principal Product Manager here at Domain Tools. Co-host Tarek Sala and myself sat down with Jackie to discuss the difference between security and true cyber threat intelligence. Our interview will include real-world examples from Jackie's experience and some tomfoolery. This bonus episode of Breaking Badness is next. Welcome to our special episode of Breaking Badness, recorded on November 14th, 2019. With us today is Principal Product Manager Jackie Abrams. And so today we'll be discussing key differences between security and true cyber threat intelligence. We're going to learn a lot more about Jackie and her passions and recent examples of applications across, again, CTI. And finally, real-world examples from Jackie's career. So lots of real-world stuff happening today. In fact, we should have a reality television series about that. <laughs> um, and so we're also joined, of course, by our senior security engineer and malware researcher, Tarek. Hello. And um, I'm your host for the day, Kelsey LaBelle. Jackie, we're so excited to have you on the podcast today and at Domain Tools. Thank you so much. I am so excited to be here. Working at Domain Tools, honestly, is a dream come true because I've been a Domain Tools fangirl for as long as I can remember. <laughs> Woohoo! <laughs> you guys helped me out on some of my earliest investigations in the threat intelligence space. So I am very appreciative for helping get my career started. Exciting. Can we do like a chicken soup for the investigator's soul? Oh, God. Are those books still a thing? I think so. If so, not, million dollar idea. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, I used to read them all the time when I was a kid. So, more than happy to support with some fun little stories. <laughs> Perfect. So, and as our listeners may or may not know, we tend to play this game called Two Truths and a Lie um, at the end of every typical episode of Breaking Badness. And we try to um, trick each other into knowing which article title is not legitimate, but we're going to play an old-fashioned style of Two Truths and a Lie to get to know Jackie, which is what we did actually on a recent episode here with Graham Cluley. And so we're going to ask Jackie to share three things, one of which will be a lie and two will be truths. Um, and then we'll come back at the end of the episode and Tark and I will then have a chance to guess after we get to know Jackie a bit. And she can tell us if we are right or wrong and, and we'll learn more about her. And no big deal, but I think I'm winning right now. I think I'm the, the first place. Oh, it's on, Tarek. <laughs> it is so on. <laughs> All right. Well, let's see if you can uh, keep your streak going when you, when you hear my samples. <laughs> All right. We're ready for you, Jackie. Me okay. especially when I beat Tarek. <laughs> <laughs> well, good luck with that. All right. First up, um, I love to cook. And I'm actually particularly inspired by all of the sweets and desserts on the Great British Baking Show. Any of you guys watch that? Maybe. I do not personally. No, but I've heard a lot of good things about it. Big fan of desserts, though, I will say. Fair enough. <laughs> All right, so that's number one. Uh, number two, um, I won my high school square dancing championship. High school I, what? Square dancing championship. Old square dancing. Oh, yeah, we had a live collar and everything. A lot of fun. Interesting. Okay, cool. Can rectangle dancing be square dancing, but square dancing can't be rectangle dancing? <laughs> These are things we should think about, too. You know, I wonder how that would work on the elongated sides. It's a good question. <laughs> All right, number three. Um, and Batman has trusted me with knowing his real identity. There's a fun story behind that one. Ooh. So. Mm. See, you can't tell right now, but I'm stroking my beard. It's one of the good things of having a beard. 
So I can stroke it when I contemplate. Hmm. <laughs> Meanwhile, in the back of my head, I'm just thinking about the periodic table of uh, the sodium element. Na 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 na. Batman. Yeah. Gotta have the fun. <laughs> All right. Okay. So now we have some things to to ponder in the back of our minds here, Tarek. Yes, we do. But in the meantime, let's let's uh, let's pick Jackie's brain on cyber threat intelligence. We know that you have lots of experience in this space, and Tark, why don't you kick it off with a few questions that you had for Jackie? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, Jackie, I really am excited to talk. As you know, uh, we've talked a little bit before, just about threat intelligence in general and how it applies inside of the security community. So, I, I think one of my first questions are. What are some areas of security intelligence that you think your traditional defenders, so your IR teams, your SOC teams, should be aware of uh, that really doesn't get talked enough about? Oh, I feel like you pitched me a softball on this one. Um, <laughs> so I think one of the biggest challenges is that people are so focused on what is in front of them and a list of IOCs um, that they lose sight of the greater challenge of threat intelligence, which is actually understanding why an adversary is coming after you, what their goal is, and then using that information to more effectively defend your network, not necessarily by predicting every attack, but by identifying what are the areas in which companies should focus their invest, um, their investments, their training, um, and really hone in on what the threats are that they are most likely to face. It's sort of that gap um, between what is a threat, what is an IOC, and then what is the intelligence that we can actually gather about something that makes it actionable, that helps us better defend. I feel like that context is often lost. Why do you think that is? Why do you think there is such a difference and a big gap between IOCs and intelligence? I think one of the challenges that a lot of people are faced with is that they are overwhelmed uh, by the amount that they have to do. People are so focused on stopping that breach, stopping that attack, that the only thing they can see are the indicators in front of them. Also, likewise, um, just because you are able to deal with a computer or understand a network or run a SOC team, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have or are comfortable with investigating the context um, behind some of these attacks. For example, this industry talks a lot about APTs, um, advanced persistent threats, state-aligned actors, same sort of umbrella. But the challenge is, is that those guys all have a set of their own individual missions that is given to them by the organizations or governments for which they work. And figuring out at a national or international strategic level, what is a threat actor's priority? What do you have that is a value to country X is a completely different skill set than just being able to say, I can defend a network. Absolutely. So we're really asking people to be multi-talented. And so if you had to um, give like a direct like piece of advice to people in a SOC to be more effective on their intelligence side, what do you think that would be? What, like, what does that look like to you? Would it be, hey, be more focused on the context of an, of an attack and attackers uh, or behind... Uh, these IOCs, or what does that look like to you? Absolutely. I'm going to flip your question around, um, or at least the proposed answer you had. It's not about focusing externally. It's about focusing internally and understanding your organization and what it does. Um, the very first thing everyone knows is that you have to identify your assets. Consider that these assets may not just be your data or your money. Um, think about where you sit in an industry. 
Think about what services you are providing and what critical infrastructure or supply chains or um, even daily services for your customers you deliver. Also think about what customers you have that you interact with or your networks connect to who might be decent targets. Um, you may just be a stepping stone in someone else's mission to get to one of your clients. And then I would say, once you understand all of the things and connections you have that are valuable, then take a step back and honestly, just follow the news. Um, the more you hear about major nation states saber rattlings or conflicts in a given country um, or even elections or scandals with the Olympics, the more relevant those things are um, to help you contextualize the threats that you may face. And keep in mind, we just spoke about APT is the same as absolutely true with cyber criminals. And I feel like they often get the short end of the uh, media stick because they're not as sexy as APTs, but still very valuable. I think, Jackie, what I'm hearing from you is a good exercise for all defenders is to uh, dream up. What would my attackers OKRs be? (laughs) (laughs) You know, that's really not a bad approach. It's it's very similar. Um, These guys all have missions and you may be a pathway to mission success. Um, That is particularly... uh, clear when you're looking at a nation state, but when you look about a criminal, how are they making money? What are they doing? What do you have that could be sold or valuable or resold? Right. And that was something that came up in the the episode we had with Graham Cluley when we were looking at um, some sort of political shenanigans, we'll say. Um, and Graham said something like, you know, sometimes you're you're looking at these attacks and it's pretty clear that it, it could be just some like skid or script kitty that is doing a modern take on pinning butterflies on a a wall and collecting them in a sense. Like they're trying to say, hey, I have this database of this many names and emails and PII or just doing it for the the street cred, as the kids probably don't say anymore. Um, So I think and that obviously allows you to assess the relative threat to your organization, like you're saying. Um, So that's extremely helpful advice to remember that attackers are people, too. And so how can we use those motivations and sort of (laughs) put that on its head? Yeah. And I think you also have to look at means and opportunity. Um, That is changing rapidly as malware becomes much more of a commodity that you can purchase. Um, You can purchase exploit kits. You can purchase phishing kits. Uh, It's much easier for people to leverage what's in front of them. But those things should really be, um, to a certain extent, a set of low-hanging fruit against which you can defend. You should know what's publicly available um, for purchase and then make sure that you are, to the best of your ability, secured against it. Obviously, no one's going to be able to protect against every zero day. Um, But at least that lower level, you should be able to have a tip-off on what might be coming. Yes, I like that. Um, And just to to pivot on to a slightly different conversation, but something I love asking Um, folks in the threat intelligence space are, what are some security threats or attack vectors that you just find fascinating? Yeah, so this is always an interesting one. I come from the mobile space, as uh, you or some of the listeners may know. And a lot of the work that I have done is about creating um, standards and best practices, as well as um, identifying threats delivered via mobile networks and mobile messaging. People, I think, forget to a certain extent how comparatively uh, quiet mobile malware is kept uh, compared to the big attacks that we see and so often 
follow in the news. And a lot of that, I think, is due to the fact that we're really bad at catching it. Um, we are really bad at identifying mobile malware. We really don't have endpoint malware detection solutions on our devices. Um, we also don't really track the traffic. Uh, that comes into and off of our devices. We don't know if our information is being siphoned or sent in the clear. Um, someone else might, and that's part of the problem. But mobile is by and large overlooked, I think, because there is a gap there and the unknown is scary. And because we are bad at securing it, um, people, I think, are afraid to lift up the covers and find out what's there. And Either that or it's too expensive to lift up the covers and find out what's there. And do you think that part of the reason why on the mobile landscape space we don't have more of an AV presence than we should, um, do you think part of that has to do with the sheer amount of privacy that mobile phones represent? I think that's part of the issue. Um, fragmentation is also an issue, especially in the Android space. You have you know hundreds of devices with hundreds of screen sizes. Um, nothing is necessarily kept consistent. So the more customization capability we have, the harder that is to defend. Yeah. Um, I would also think that it is not so much a matter of privacy because were somebody truly concerned um, with privacy, they would also want to make sure that their information is not being stolen by criminals, um, which is sort of the double-edged sword if you start installing things that are meant to monitor and track on your phone. Um, but it's also, I think, a lack of ability to profit. Uh, there is not necessarily a huge market uh, for consumer mobile AV. I don't know how much any of us would be willing to spend um, to defend our devices in that way and have to keep another app running and have something else we have to troubleshoot. It'll probably suck battery life. Um, so there are technical challenges as well. But I still think that there's a considerable one um, just with the market and that we are not offering up seamless solutions. Yeah, I would agree. I think it's interesting, too, and not to segue too much, but Silence, um, they have a pretty phenomenal EDR product. Um, and uh, I know they just stepped into the mobile um, mobile security space as well. So that's something on my to-do list to evaluate. I don't know if you've had a chance to use that or not. I'll be honest. I haven't checked it out. If their tagline is not like, silence your phone, oh. I will <laughs> cry. God. Oh, that's great. Silence. That's the second million dollar ID you've had on this <laughs> podcast so far. I love that it. is hilarious. Um, so one thing I love asking everybody in the threat intel space and in, in the security space too, but specifically in the threat intel space, um, how important is threat actor attribution? Because this is a very subjective thing. I know, at least from my background of the incident response uh, you know, side of the house, um, who did it isn't really as important as all the other components of an attack. But for threat intel folks, I'd like to hear your thoughts. Absolutely. Um, so I fall into the unpopular, relatively unpopular camp that attribution is absolutely critical. Um, it is not critical because we need to find someone to blame. It is critical in understanding what the landscape is. Without knowing who did it, you'll have a very hard time understanding why someone did it. And sort of looping back up to my uh, biggest concern or gap in the industry is that no one is really looking at the why of why attackers are coming after you. Um, not knowing who is attacking you means you can't possibly look at their motivations. And that really hamstrings you in terms of being able to predict and prioritize for the attacks you may face. Awesome. I agree. The more that you start analyzing what people's motives are in attacks and the greater a body of work uh, we have to look at of somebody's past attacks, especially on the APT side, um, that's how you start to really build TTPs for a given group. 
Um, you can start to map them. You can start to connect them. It's not just about defending the attack you see today, but it's about, okay, you defended the attack you see today. Was the guy attacking you um, invested enough to keep trying specifically for you? And if so, um, how are they going to do it? And we figure that out by what they've done in the past. Thinking back to Tarek's initial question about attribution, I think another common conversation that I'd love your your perspective on is when you're talking about counterfeiting specifically um, and, and when you've gone and potentially attributed an attack to a specific person and you identify who's responsible, what is uh, what is the threshold for being able to take action against identified infrastructure or potentially individuals, again, depending on sort of that wide definition of what attribution is? Well, that's always a challenge. And actually, I've had some experience investigating counterfeit cases. And part of the problem is that it's very hard to prove um, from a hosting or infrastructure standpoint whose products are real and whose aren't, who has the right to sell something and who doesn't. Um, detecting fake products online is something that is a challenge, even for uh, the likes of Amazon, as you guys are all about to hear uh, during holiday times with regard to people purchasing counterfeit goods unknowingly. Um, and so unfortunately, the ability to take down or impact the infrastructure of someone who is promoting online counterfeiting operations is pretty much hamstrung. Now, that being said, um, there are other things that you can do. So a lot of times the organization or brand whose material or products is being counterfeited does have options. Uh, for example, one counterfeiting ring that I investigated, uh, when you download the traceback, we were actually able to um, connect the counterfeiting ring with the factory out of uh, which they sold the goods and manufactured the goods in China. And in so doing, we were able to determine that the actual brands did uh, make their goods at this factory. And we had people who were selling runoffs, um, which was highly problematic. Now, by alerting a brand to that information, they certainly have the capability to cut their contracts um, and to move to other producers and manufacturers. That's really important information. They also, um, because this is something that was uh, closely connected with another company or organization, have the ability to bring suit um, and the legal remedies, at least for organizations whose goods or products are being counterfeited, are just as valuable um, as sometimes the infrastructure components because it's very easy to spin back up technical infrastructure. It is much harder um, to reopen a factory that's been shut down and find funding. That's a really good point. Um, and I think the whole, uh, I think counterfeit, and uh, you know, I think you originally brought this up about, uh, you know, the attack vector for this was spam over text messaging when we originally talked. Um, but I think counterfeiting is a really interesting angle of security that's kind of uh, in the lower depths of it. I don't think it gets discussed enough. Um, I think a lot of security is very traditional defender attacker, but this is a really fascinating angle of security too. Um, so kind of segueing from that a little bit is. You know, when it comes to like a lot of these counterfeiter scams, um, can you maybe describe to the audience like what's the general impact like to everybody because of uh, counterfeiters? Like, what can people expect, and what's what damages can be done to like general people because of this stuff? Oh, absolutely. Well, there's a whole different swath of problems that consumers will face. And again, as we're going into the holiday season, discussing this is fairly apropos. Um, there's, of course, the uh, the less 
obvious harms of being able to purchase a good that you think is a main brand name, and it turns out it's not a main brand name, but you get the look, and that's wonderful. Now, what you may not realize is that the money that you have spent or sent over to this criminal um, is being used for nefarious things. It might be used to fund drug rings. It might be used to support human trafficking. Um, and that's part of the unseen side. Now, there's also, of course, what you would generally expect. Not just did you get a product that wasn't what you thought it was. Um, you got something that will malfunction or that will eminently harm you. It could have been manufactured with chemicals um, that could poison you or dyes, especially when it comes to children's products. Um, if it's with regard to medical equipment, the risk is even higher. And yes, you do see things like um, counterfeit hearing aids. So it really depends on what the particular item is, but no matter what happens, you are giving money to an organization that absolutely should not be worthy of your investment. Awesome. That's a great point. And I want to go and uh, uh, take a step back to what Tarek actually mentioned at the beginning of our conversation here about your, your real-world experience. But I'm curious... Um, about the spam over text messaging, what are some indicators that you were able to grab if you can speak to them in some level of depth and turn into sort of that uh, that full story that you were then able to go and on a physical level change um, and, and make an impact? Absolutely. Now, I would love to tell you that I worked some special magic um, and that we did something that could not possibly be replicated by anyone else. That is completely untrue. Um, everything that I did or my team did to investigate any of the attacks that we worked on um, is fairly straightforward. And it's a standard process that anyone involved in threat intelligence should be able to replicate. And honestly, any novices at home can take you know, a crack at themselves. And they'll probably be able to be fairly successful. Um, we all have cell phones. The first thing we started with was a text message. Now, for any threat actor to get value from a text message, there needs to be some way for them to interact with the consumer. Um, in this particular counterfeiting case, we had text messages claiming that there would be deep discounts on Coach Styles or Michael Kors bags, um, and the shipping is free, there's free returns, and all you would have to do is go to this website. Um, and that's really where your investigation begins. I don't think anyone is going to try to scam you without giving you a way to interact, um, with the exception of things like SIM swapping, but that's a whole other story, uh, at least with regard to spam text messages. So, or even spam phone calls. You have to have some point of contact where you exchange um, money or information with a scammer. So in this instance, we started out with our favorite thing to start with, a domain. And... <laughs> Now working at Domain Tools, it is really interesting to see how, by and large, so many investigations do start with that simple bit of information. Um, so what we ended up doing to unmask this um, counterfeiting ring was really straightforward. We, first of all, did a couple of things. We looked at the domain and we attempted to map the infrastructure. One of the other things that we did was we took the actual language um, from the website. And quite frankly, we Googled it. Um, you'd be surprised how many related sites you can also find that are may not be technically connected just by Googling a phrase from terms and conditions. Um, mm. Usually they write these legalese things once, they're fake to begin with, and then you can 
put a lock of text in quotes and Google foo your way to a whole other swath of sites that use the exact same language. Interesting. So it's it's almost like the Google Analytics code that somebody might be scraping to create a credential harvesting site, but with the T's and C's in a sense. Absolutely. Um, And that's the sort of thing you can just search on. Uh, You would be surprised by how many people I think overlook that step when starting their investigations. Um, But that should give you a whole swath of domains to look at. From there, uh, it's a pretty simple pivot. You look at the DNS records, um, you convert them into owning entities um, or into IP addresses. You look at all the email addresses associated. You do a pivot off of that to identify all of the other additional infrastructure. Um, and every once in a while, you'll find someone who does something silly and makes a mistake. Uh, in this particular set of instances, we were able to map almost all of the um, websites selling the fake goods and connect them to one site where the registrant uh, actually used his QQ number. So it was an email address at QQ, which for those of you guys who don't know, it's a pretty popular communications channel in China. And with that, we were able to identify an address. That email address, though, had been used to register nearly 2,000 domain names since 2012. Um, And almost all of them were typo squatting on major brands or hijacking brand-associated URLs for things like Michael Kors, um, Hermes, Prada, Louis Vuitton. You get the point. Um, By the way, Ugg boots, Ray-Bans, Oakleys, and Beats by Dre headphones are also really popular this holiday season, so watch (laughs) out for counterfeiting. That would be a really funny piece is like, Learn, rather than, you know, Target or something being like, this is the toy of the season. It's like, these are the brands that are being spoofed the most. So they're probably the most popular. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and what was really interesting is that while we were doing our investigations, which were separate, um, a legal case was actually brought. But the legal case, when we were able to get access to that information, um, only contained about 813 domain names. Um And I think it was like 470 some odd registrant accounts with only 64 online marketplace accounts that were accused. Uh, In reality, that was only a fraction of the network we were able to find with our additional investigations. So even though some companies may be attempting to take action, um, it may not necessarily be uncovering the whole swath of interconnected components. So uh, don't let that discourage you. Even the pros get it wrong sometimes. And isn't, um, it, isn't it amazing how easy it is to be successful at doing bad things without really having any sophistication? Like a lot of these uh, scammer, uh, sophisticated scammer services that make a lot of money, they're really not that hard or complex to operate, it sounds like. No, absolutely not. And when you look at something like text messaging, that is such an easy pathway to consumers. Um, I think the statistics are like uh, the rate of text message opens in the U.S. is 98% within three minutes. So think of how often you guys actually look in your spam folder in your email, which I'm hoping is like next to never and click on a link there, um, versus how often you'll actually look at a text message that comes in on your device. Oh, you don't know me well at all. Uh, I love going through my spam. I I am pretty sure that I was not meant to include people like people in the industry who do this as part of our jobs. My spam Um, folder is just another honeypot, really. (laughs) Hey, you know what? I save all of my uh, voicemails that I get about consolidating my non-existent student loan debt or, um, (laughs) you know, extending my warranty on that car that I don't have. 
Absolutely. That's half the fun. I don't want to get <laughs> too crazy, but I have a really good deal going on with a Nigerian prince uh, right now. Uh, <laughs> very lucrative opportunities here. Very yeah. lucrative. So oh check my. your spam folders, people. <laughs> Um, oh my God. Generally, I assume if you are listening to this podcast, you will not actually engage with people in your spam folders unless it is out of <laughs> professional interest. So just a disclaimer there, don't trust any of it. Um, Thank you. Yes. <laughs> that was sarcasm, people, from me. <laughs> you never know. Um, Good point. Well, I'm Jackie, I'm curious then to, to wrap up this wonderful story that you're telling us here. I'm just going back to what your original, the original point that you were making about motivations of those actors, what did that look like in this situation? I'm assuming money was involved as it was counterfeit. They were clearly spoofing luxury goods. What else did you, what other picture were you able to paint about these actors and cyber criminals based on what you found? So this one by and large was pure profit. Um, because they had access to manufacturing facilities and believe it or not, the material cost, um, in China to produce something like these luxury goods, uh, is usually measured in cents, not dollars. Um, you know, and the markup is somewhere around, well, certainly more than a hundred percent. So there is a large profit incentive. Obviously, individual markups will depend on the brands, but a large profit incentive to be able to take something that is so cheap and sell it for so much money. Um, now, that is fortunate in this instance to a certain extent that there are not more nefarious components behind it. Um, but if you guys look in the news, a lot of this does support really awful things um, like human trafficking. And what's also interesting is that we may not realize that there are other regimes um, that are sanctioned that may be using not just counterfeiting, but other scams and hack attempts, etc., to be funding um, things like their militaries and their labor camps. Some of uh, these countries, in fact, will be using that money directly uh, to oppose the United States or whatever your other home countries may be. Um, so always be aware that the money can be used in any number of ways. And as soon as it steps outside of a legitimate channel, um, you are funding something that will become a problem for someone else. That's a really good take and a really good call out there. Yeah, and back to your question, Tarek, about what are some of the consequences of these types of scams? They definitely lie much deeper than just losing $30, you know, $30 for what you thought would be. Yeah. A nice fancy purse or whatever that might be. So that's a fantastic point, Jackie. And hopefully to provide a little bit of levity after that reality check. And as a good reminder, like you were saying, for Cyber Monday, Black Friday, all of that jazz, um, I, I'd love to get back to your two truths and a lie. And so if you wouldn't mind repeating those, because Tarek and I's memory has been wiped with the dark realities of the world. <laughs> and then we can give our best guess and you can tell which of one of us, spoiler alert, it will be me, probably not, Tark will probably be me, um, is right. You got it. Well, the first one um, was that I love to cook, especially the Great British Baking Soda desserts. Um, the other one was that I won my high school square dancing championship. And the very last one was that Batman has trusted me with knowing his true identity. Right. Mm. Tark, do you want the first or the second guess? Oh. I'll let you choose. You know what? I'm going to go with the second guess. Son of a. <laughs> <laughs> alrighty, alrighty. Hmm. See what I did there? I see what you did. This the is like the strategy for, what's that, what's that game show where you have to, uh, oh God, 
drawing a blank here. His actual strategy is to keep me from thinking about which one it is. Uh, <laughs> I'm on to you, Tarek. If you, th- if you say the item's worth $5, I come on in and say it's worth $5 and a penny. Oh, oh, oh. Uh, price is right? Price is right. Yeah, I'm doing price the price is right, is right strategy, yeah. Mm, okay. Well, the Batman thing is so wonderfully outrageous that it's hard for me not to accept that that's true because I want it to be so very badly. Oh, oh, and mm, yes, mm, okay. Mm, I'm gonna keep this to myself. No, I'm gonna say that one is true. I'm gonna. Th- hmm. Do you want me to go first? Because I'm, I'm ready. Say, I'm gonna say it's the second one, Jackie. That's your lie in my mind. <sighs> you don't think yes. I'm a high school square dancing champion, do you? No, I think you're into the rectangle. Hmm. <laughs> All right. Tarek, your guess. It, I can't believe my strategy just backfired on me because I was 100% all for square dancing championship. I think that's the lie. Because um, the Batman one, I think the Batman one is the honeypot. I think you want me mm. to go to that because it's so outrageous. But I think it's so outrageous it's true. God dang you, Kelsey. <laughs> okay. I'm going to say, because I have to be different, I know it's the square dancing, but I'm going to say it's the the British cooking uh, option, so number one, even though I know I'm wrong. All right, are you ready for the big reveal? Drum roll, please. Go! I can't cook to save my life. Oh! Sanava, the Targs. Wait, can you take credit after you backed up on that so much? Tarks? The irony is that I was lying the whole time. There's <laughs> <laughs> the double possum strategy. The double possum. <laughs> oh, Jackie, you're killing me. Gotcha. I'm so. Sorry. It's all good though because the Batman being you knowing their true identity, which I'm assuming is an attribution. Joke um, of sorts. There's a story there. There's a story. We <laughs> must promised. hear it. There is. I will be honest with you. It's not all that cool as it sounds. Um, it just comes off cooler as two truths and a lie. Uh, way <laughs> back uh, when Christian Bale, right before he did his very first Batman movie, I was smushed up against him in the subway um, right before the movie dropped because he was doing all of his interviews. And I remember this gentleman from Newsies. And I sort of looked up, looked down. We were just super crowded subway car and I was just making a face at him and I was just and he looked at me because I was making a strange face at him and he's like okay and I was like <laughs> you are him aren't you because I didn't want to say anything in a subway car right, right. Um, and then he dropped to the gravelly Batman voice and said I knew I could trust you with my double identity and I was like okay oh that's amazing dude that was- don't, don't downplay that was an awesome <laughs> that was story. awesome now question to you <laughs> random though I, I can take no credit for it <laughs> I have several questions right now number one <laughs> before the Batman voice did he use his British voice He's That's the, the only line he said to me was uh, the double identity joke. Didn't get anything else. Fascinating. I've Granted, this goes, is years ago, but... <laughs> I've heard he conversationally drops between American and British accents, like conversationally and normally, so huh. super curious. But Did you just look back up at him and go, where are the drugs? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I, I will be perfectly honest. I just smiled, nodded, and turned back around because you're in a crowded subway car in New York City and you don't say anything because you will never get out of said crowded subway car in New York City. So. An excellent point. And this is a good reminder for us all to take public transportation because you could learn Batman's true identity. That is a good one. <laughs> 
Well, Jackie, I don't think there's any higher note to end on of that of learning Batman's true identity. So I want to thank you so much for your time and for this great discussion and really appreciate your thoughtful comments on CTI and your own experiences. And so just, again, so excited to have you here and to, to hear your story. So thank you so much for being on the podcast today. All right. Well, I hope I was a good enough guest that I will get invited back for another time because I was just leading up to an interesting transition to talk about the Lazarus Group, um, which is one of those APTs funding themselves through online activities to support one of the interesting nation states that's arrayed against the U.S. So if you guys want to hear more, um, please invite me back. Thank you. Part two coming soon. Cliffhanger. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) You must tune back in to hear it. Yes, Jackie, we would love to have you back on the podcast. In fact, we might have to lock you in the studio and just pick your brain for hours. So thank you so much. And this is definitely a voice I'm sure many people will be hearing on the Breaking Badness podcast. Excellent. Well, thank you guys so much for having me. And uh, to the audience out there, I look forward to speaking to you again soon. Take care. That's about all we have for this week. You can find us on Twitter at Domain Tools. All of the articles and IOCs mentioned today will be included in our blog post, which can be found at domaintools.com slash resources slash podcasts. Catch us every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific time when we publish our podcast and blog. That's all we have for this week. We'll see you next week on another episode of Breaking Badness. Until then, remember, don't drink and click.